Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found The Q Word Podcast. Hi, Lisa. Welcome back to another episode of the Q Word Podcast. Yeah, we have some information, some important information to share with our ER nursing friends. Um, Do you remember before COVID, I think it was the fall before COVID, I came to visit you in Boston. We did so many fun things and ate so much good food. But one highlight for me was when you took me to Mass General and we looked at some of their historical displays there in the hospital. They have like, it's like, like a mini, not really a museum, but some displays. And in particular, one room that we went to in, uh, that was like a surgical theater. Can you tell me? Do you remember? Yeah, I do remember, actually. And I remember it was very strange. Uh, so what we're talking about is Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Um, and I had always known that it was the location for the first surgery ever performed with ether. And the amphitheater is known as the ether dome and you can still go visit it. It's open to the public. Um, but it, I had expected it to be, I think both of us had expected it to be sort of like, you know, a grand entrance and we had to, uh, you know, maybe check in with a ticket person and, you know, maybe go past a display of some sort of information and then, you know, maybe queue up to, uh, as one would, the Declaration of Independence or something like that. But instead, we kind of walked through these uh, business hallways, you know, with just like photocopiers and water coolers and people bustling around um, and asked directions a few times until somebody pointed us to, oh, it's just right there. And we go through these doors and there we are alone in the ether dome. Yeah, we had the whole place to ourselves. The whole place, yeah. It's not humongous, but it's exactly what you think of when you think of a Victorian-era operating theater. So it's in the Bullfinch Building at MGH in Boston. You can get there very easily by the MBTA. So when you come to Boston, you should go and visit it. It's really cool, right next to a really cool hotel called the Liberty that used to be a jail, and that's really cool to visit, but that's another whole story. So the amphitheater was the original operating room in the hospital back in the early 1800s. And then it was in 1846, the site of this first sort of public demonstration of the use of this brand new anesthesia, this first ability to have an operation without there being any pain. There's also a really cool monument in the Boston Public Garden um, towards the ether dome. It's this really cool sort of statue um, in the garden that has um, a four-sided plinth that has these very elaborate carvings that indicate or the, the cessation of pain uh, under uh, under the knife, under operation. So it's super, super cool. And we had a lot of fun sort of poking around and sitting in the old-fashioned seats, and uh, there's a big painting on the wall. Yeah, it's not roped off. Like, you can sit in seats where where students and, you know, observers would would be you can stand in the place where the surgery would have taken place and correct me if I'm wrong but the lore is something like so before ether before anesthesia a patient would have to actually be held down like physically held down by multiple 
strong men because there was no, I mean, maybe a little bit of alcohol on board to sort of numb some of it. But otherwise, there really wasn't anything that was offered other than just physical brute restraint. And or, or, or sometimes they would they would punch him in the jaw uh, to yeah. try to knock him out. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything and pa- that they and could patients to... would decline and say, I'd rather just let whatever's going to happen happen. Or mm-hmm. even there are even some um, uh, anecdotes of suicide where patients were like, you know what? I would just rather go quickly than horrifically painfully. And then now tell me if this is true, that this was a dentist that created the ether. Is that right? So it was, there's some, there's some debate about who, but yes, the first person who used it was a dentist. Um, and he used it to extract a portion of a benign tumor from a Boston area man's uh, neck. It had been there his whole life. The man agreed to uh, be anesthetized, um, and uh, to be part of this experiment. Um, it didn't demonstrably reduce the size of the tumor, but the patient was able to, um, sleep comfortably through it. He inhaled uh, through a contraption, sort of like a glass uh, cloche uh, sort of thing that uh, was uh, had a sponge that was sodden with the ether, and then it was also mixed with some sort of nitric... Uh, uh, I'm getting into too many technical details, but it allowed them to regulate the dosage so that he could inhale, breathe in the ether, fall asleep. They performed the operation, and then when he woke up, he said that all he felt was as if uh, there had been some scratching on his neck. Uh, so it was uh, more or less pain-free. Now, I wanted to mention that what the horrors of um, operations were like prior to um, being anesthetized, not just from the um, patient's perspective, but also from the medical person's perspective, right? So um, you're, uh, there was a very famous story of doctors performing a breast uh, uh, mastectomies on fully conscious women um, and having to use a, a, basically a, a hacksaw to saw off portions of a woman's flesh. Uh, you hear about um, uh, uh, war doctors being able to um, take off a leg uh, in two minutes and they are literally using a hacksaw and there's, there's nothing. So uh, to be traumatized as a patient by having to go under an operation without any painkiller, it's also traumatizing for the medical professionals as well. So ether was not only a boon to the person who was being operated on, but it provided the medical professional with the opportunity to perform their art, their craft, without screaming <laughs> and, uh, and struggles and pain and terror and horror. It was a far more peaceful, more manageable situation. So tell me how much of this is lore, if you know. So they're up there getting ready to operate on this guy with the neck or whatever it was. They've got the people there prepared to hold him down. They've got an amphitheater full of medical students and residents and fellows and whoever would be there, attendants. And then this dentist comes busting in the room and says, I can take away your patient's pain. And then, no, not quite. And then provides the ether. No, so it was all prearranged. That's not it, how it, it happened. It was all prearranged. It was all prearranged. Oh. They had made the arrangement. Ether was had been developed, um, and they had been for years trying to develop different types of, of ways to anesthetize patients. 
there are fun stories of these early Victorian uh, era, sort of pre-Victorian era doctors um, trying different uh, substances and they would sit around tables um, inhaling a substance. They would all pass out. Um, they'd sort of take a, a note of their watch, what time it was before they inhaled the substance. They would each inhale it at a different time. They'd all pass out. Um, and then when they woke back up, they'd write their notes back down and then they'd try it again the next night. So people had been long in the search of uh, the magical waters of Lethe, I believe is the Greek term or that sort of mythological idea of something that would provide um, um, respite or relief from the pain that um, comes from surgery. So in this particular case, ether had been developed. They had once prior demonstrated um, a different substance in the ether dome that did not work. Um, and as they were operating, the patient moaned in, um, in pain. And so all of the men standing around shouted, humbug, humbug, because it didn't prevent the pain when they actually did the ether this time and it had it all prearranged and the dentist who had been trying to use it agreed to do it on this man. This man agreed to be the patient and all the doctors were arranged. They went ahead and delivered it. They performed the operation and he didn't scream out. He felt slept directly through it when he woke up afterwards. Then the dentist, you know, very ostentatiously turned back around to the crowd and said, see, gentlemen, this is not humbug. Um, and from that point forward, ether became developed as an anesthesia. This is sort of a loose retelling of the story, but it's a really cool way of um, hearkening back to a time before we had even the basics of painkillers. Uh, and now it's everywhere. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you know, that you were talking about they're, they're experimenting with different uh, combinations and different time frames for anesthesia or whatever and and it would be fair to say that we are still some nearly 200 years later trying to dial it in exactly and we are not always getting it right and that's what we're talking about today is research that came out um, recently called the ED awareness study and it is specifically about patients who have been um, given anesthesia which is paralytics and induction agents in the emergency department who, um, for, for reasons that we will discuss, had awareness during their paralysis. Okay, so ether so, is supposed to put you completely to sleep, or the idea of anesthesia is that it completely knocks you out and you should remember nothing. But if it's not administered right, you may still remember things, and this is what we're talking about. Right. And not just remember things, but feel things oh. and be unable to move. So we give different agents, one to paralyze your muscles and one as an amnestic and uh, uh, for the pain. Um, and if you don't get them both dialed in exactly correctly, you can have remembrance and awareness and feel pain, but still be unable to move, unable to indicate to anyone that you are you are aware and you are feeling pain. OK, wow, that's terrifying. Yes. So um, this study took place in St. Louis, Missouri. It was a single center study, and um, it was a retrospective chart, um, uh, started with a chart review. And the folks doing the study reviewed some over 800 some odd charts um, to find the patients that could be included. So they wanted patients who were intubated during for using RSI in the, specifically in the emergency department it was 833 mechanically ventilated patients who had gone through the emergency department 
450 of them were excluded. Uh, exclusion things were things like um, they died before the procedures could continue. They were transferred to another facility. Um, they were unable to find them for whatever reason, or they had neurological insults where they would unable to be uh, were unable to be interviewed for the purposes of this study. So 450 patients were excluded, which means that 383 patients were included. Okay. So the next step of the project was they, uh, this is a, what we call a qualitative study, which are kind of unusual, um, mm -hmm. where they went and interviewed the patients and asked them if they had any memories of being in the emergency department or being intubated. Um, they used a validated tool so some of the questions they asked them were things like, what's the last thing you remembered before you were before going to sleep? What's the first thing you remember when you woke up? Do you remember anything between going to sleep and waking up? Did you dream during your procedure and were those dreams disturbing to you? If they said yes to the memories, then what was it exactly that you remembered? And um, it went in depth this way. Once the interviews were conducted, they had a panel of three experts that reviewed the interviews and determined whether the patients had no, you know, no, this is not a memory of, you know, of uh, awareness with paralysis, or yeah, this is a possible memory, and then um, if it was a definite memory, and they were able to correlate it with the documentation of what happened in the emergency department. So of the 383 patients that they interviewed, they found 10 patients with awareness with paralysis. That's not that high of a number. So <laughs> I mean, ten is more. It, it's it's not insignificant, but no, it's a it's a high number. When when let's put it in this perspective. So that's two point six percent of all of the patients. Okay. Um, in the OR where they also use anesthesia and you know do that. procedures and so forth, the the um, studies that they have done show a point one percent. 0.1 versus 2.6. So this is, although it's a small number, it's exponentially higher. And if you're one of these 10 people, uh, it's it's incredibly high. And remember, this was one ER. So if you extrapolate it across all of the ERs, think of the number of people. And then you add in pre-hospital, uh, the flight environment where we also RSI. Uh, how many of those patients have awareness with paralysis? So um, it becomes a pretty... A serious concern um, why this is happening to patients and how to prevent it. Okay, so why do patients experience this? Uh, what's going on with those? Is this a dosing error? Is this a mechanical error? A protocol error? Yes, yes, yes to all of those. Yes. So the patients that were more prone to um, to be at risk for awake, uh, awareness with paralysis would be patients with um, who were morbidly obese, who were maybe being dosed with standard doses instead of doses based on body weight. So um, when you are caring for your patients, be aware of body weight doses instead of just a flat dose going across all populations, which would be less appropriate. Um, also, patients were the majority of patients who had awareness with paralysis had been given rocuronium. So we have two paralytics generally that we reach for, succinylcholine and rocuronium. Succinylcholine has been the one that we've been using forever and ever and ever. It's a very short acting. It's gone within 
10 minutes, five, 10 minutes. Um, but it has a lot of contraindications. Uh, and so, and many times in crash airways and emergent airways in the emergency department, we may not know a full history on our patient to know if it would be contraindicated in them or have a full set of labs back to know if, um, if their potassium is high. So rocuronium is a much safer option as far as contraindications. The only real relative uh, contraindication is if your patient has been seizing because the rocuronium will um, hide the seizure and, and uh, there's a chance that your, your seizing patient will go untreated. So okay. really, and that's a relative contraindication. So rocuronium has become the bell of the ball lately, and everyone is turning to it and using it. But instead of being gone in five or 10 minutes, it can last 30, 45, up to, up to an hour, depending on your patient's metabolism and the dosing. So it's much, much longer acting. That's just paralysis without any, um, it, it does not address pain. It does not address sedation. It does not address amnesia. Other agents have to be given for that. So um, what is happening sometimes is patients are not being given the correct dose, as we said, because of their body habitus. Uh, other times they're given the induction agent, which can, which can be ketamine or etomidate, but providers are not waiting long enough for that, to, that medication to kick in, for the am amnestic part and the anesthesia part to kick in. Mm -hmm. before they go ahead and intubate the patient. So many of these patients that were interviewed, their memory was of the actual intubation, which tells us in all likelihood that that induction agent had not been given enough time to work. Okay. So that's one thing we want to ensure is know your pharmacology and know how long those medications are going to take to um, kick in before the intubation takes place. Now, there are um, algorithms that you all use to determine proper dosage based upon things like body weight, age, and other indicators, correct? So that will vary from institution to institution, and it can vary from provider to provider as well. So as nursing staff, we don't, uh, we don't choose the dosage in the emergency department. We don't choose the medication in the emergency department. We can make suggestions. We can ask, hey, can we go a little bit higher? This patient is, you know, is is bigger or smaller or whatever. Um, so it needs to be a multidisciplinary approach. We need to talk with our pharmacy. We need to talk with our providers. We need to have nursing involved and respiratory therapy because the respiratory therapists are the ones who are going to be fighting with the ventilator if this patient is poorly sedated or uh, if their pain management is, is not under control. The, the respiratory therapists are there. You can't fix it with a ventilator. Um, one other question. So these par paralytics, um, in movies would have us believe that your entire body is frozen, but your eyeballs can still move wildly about and uh, a highly sensitive and focused nurse will see those wild eyes and realize that, oh, the dose isn't right. Is that true? No, that's not true. But it's very interesting that you bring that up because there's two points about the eyeballs that I want to talk about. So when a patient is paralyzed, they cannot blink. They cannot protect their, their own eye, eyes, their, the eyeball. And so if they happen to have their eyelids a bit open, anything that passes by their gauze or nasal cannula, tubing, or anything could potentially scratch their eye because they can't protect it. So frequently we need to close their eyes and even maybe tape them closed to protect 
the eyeball on their behalf while they have this paralytic on board. The other interesting thing, while you can't wildly, uh, you know, jolt your eyes about trying to, to cue someone in that you are, you are aware under there, tearing is one of the signs. So you may see if your patient is tearing, that's an indication that they are feeling something uh, under the paralytic and that they need more sedation, more anesthesia. Vital signs will also reflect it. Uh, not always, it's not uh, 100% reliable, but high blood pressure and tachycardia are an indication as well that if your they eyes are feeling some pain. If your eyes are stuck wide open, won't they automatically tear up anyway? Uh, maybe. Okay. All right, but that's interesting. I have yeah. seen the movie also where the where the tears are flowing out and the eyeballs are not moving. So mm-hmm. somebody has it right and not all of them do. Okay, um, this is terrifying and fascinating. Yes, and so the, the other thing that was found in this um, uh, looking back is that when a patient is intubated, it's, it's usually, again, in the emergency room for emergent reasons, obviously, sometimes crash airways. And there are other types of resuscitation that need to be done after the intubation is done. So they're being placed on the ventilator, we're getting arterial blood gases, we're drawing labs, we are um, addressing other injuries or uh, you know parts of the illness that they have. And so it gets really, really busy. And what happens is the additional sedation and pain medication um, doses that need to be given get forgotten. Um, and all of a sudden you look up and realize it's been 20 minutes since they've had anything and that's far too long. So, um, so having pain, uh, pain and sedation ready before the intubation happens is one of the suggestions for preventing it. Using weight-based dosages is another one. Uh, another thing that was found is that the dosages that patients were being placed on for continuous drips, specifically a drip called propofol, were far too low. Um, you're beginning at five or 10 mics um, per kilo, and that's way too low to to um, sedate a patient. And so there's a balance there that we have to strike where you're giving them enough sedation, but you're not sending them so deeply into sedation that their recovery is gonna be difficult. Also, the two medications that you would give for sedation, both Versed and Propofol, have impacts on their blood pressure. It will lower blood pressure. So many times you will see um, nurses backing off on the sedation because the blood pressure has dropped. But what we're finding is that can lead to awakeness during paralysis. So Scott Weingart, in his um, podcast about the same research, recommends having a vasopressor ready, at the ready, in the room before the intubation even happens. And his recommendation is Levofed. Um, that way, if you see that your patient is requiring, you, you, you set your patient on the appropriate amounts of sedation, and it has a hemodynamic effect, you have a a presser to hang and address that right away Mm -hmm. so that you don't drop their sedation because of their blood pressure and then they're feeling the pain and they are aware with paralysis. Okay. All right, so Um, what else can we do? These are all preventative measures, right? Yeah, so these are things that we can do hopefully to, um, to mitigate this. 
Okay. Be aware that if rocuronium is being used, you need to be extremely vigilant. If you're giving pushes until pharmacy can send you something, set a timer on your phone. Set a timer on your Apple Watch, whatever. Set it for every 10 minutes so that your patient can be getting push doses until you get something hanging. If you're using propofol, be prepared to address hypotension with a vasopressor. Um, and then if, if you can, in your protocols, have analgesia and sedation ready prior to the intubation. And then Scott Weingart would say even have the vasopressor ready as well. Um, because this is just one study, one of the calls for is for more information. We need to know more about this and have more um more institutions included and so there is a follow-up study that is um planned it's called ed awareness 2 mm -hmm. and it will take place on in uh, five different institutions and what they're going to do this time is because we know that this is happening to some patients they're going to do education with the staff and try to mitigate this and see then when they interview the patients afterwards this will begin in 2023 and it will take about three years to complete but you have the information now mm -hmm. um, and so you can change your practice experiencing exactly when they go through this and why is it such a big deal yeah so um some of the long-term consequences can be things like ptsd um, depression uh, complex phobias that include like distrust of healthcare and healthcare, the establishment and, and, and just not wanting to follow up because you had such a terrible experience in the first place. So those kinds of phobias where, um, you're, you're just terrified that you're going to experience this pain again, uh, in, in the, um, publication of the, the study, they do, do have some direct quotes from the patients and some summaries from the patients um, that I want to direct you to. And if you'll read some of these, they are absolutely horrifying. So this is what we run the risk of doing to our patients if we are not vigilant with our dosing, our protocols, our timing, our understanding of pharmacology. So um, we first have a 37-year-old male. He fell off a roof. Uh, and had some uh, musculoskeletal fractures, specifically to his leg. And what does he say? This is patient 11. He said that, well, he reported that remembering things in between losing consciousness and waking up, and he reported a sensation of not being able to move as if he were paralyzed. So that means that the paralytic worked, but the painkiller was wearing off, right? He remembered waking up with someone pulling very hard on his injured leg, which caused severe pain. He thinks he was in the ED. Uh, he said this was the worst pain he had ever had, and it was unbearable. And he said he felt scarred by going through such intense pain. He reported that he tried to move but couldn't. He remembers hearing alarms, hearing and seeing three to four people standing around his bed and one person pulling hard on his injured leg. Yeah, and when this experience that he, this horrific experience that he um, recounts is cross-referenced with his records, it shows that he did have an open fracture and dislocation that was reduced in the emergency department. This is definitely what he was experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, and they did report that he had a spike in his blood pressure during this event. Uh, so what that tells us is it wasn't the intubation that he remembers, like so many of the patients. It was this extremely painful procedure that would have happened 
you know, 20, 30 minutes later. So he wasn't getting continuous infusions or, uh, or doses, intermittent doses that were high enough to keep him sedated and from uh, pain-free. Wow. Um, what about patient number 20? This is a 57-year-old female. She came in after a house fire. They were um, concerned about an inhalation injury. Yep. She said she remembered coming into the ED after the fire and my throat hurt. They said they were worried about my breathing, so they needed to put a breathing tube in. Said that when she woke up, she could not move, but could hear people talking about putting a camera down to look at my lungs. She said she felt a lot of pain in the back of her throat and inside her chest from something going down the tube. Ugh. When I woke up, it felt like the same room and I heard the same voices. I felt that pain inside my chest before I went to sleep again. Okay, so that sounds to me as if they pushed her later, that she woke up a little bit and then maybe went ahead and and put her back under, but not quickly enough before she regained some consciousness. So she, you know, probably when she says, you know, we're worried about your breathing, we need to put a tube in, that's before any kind of medication. That's just a conversation you might have with your patient. And then um, it shows in her records that she was intubated and then had a bronchoscopy. So that's what she was hearing. She was hearing them saying, we're going to put a camera down, and then she actually felt it as well, and her lungs on fire. Um yeah, so this would have, again, happened not immediately after the intubation, but minutes and minutes and minutes later. Uh, and then the last one that I want you to read, patient 21. This is a 41-year-old male. He was a pedestrian struck by a car, had an open tib fracture, um, and was intubated in the ER. Well, he said that he was in the ED, and he heard a female nurse say, we are trying to bring you back. Just stay calm. That sounds... Not so terrifying, except we're trying to bring part. you back. <laughs> well, he so, heard it. I don't. <laughs> and then what's what's happening in his uh, chart? What they find is that he was actually intubated with succinylcholine, which is the one that we said is fairly safe uh, when it comes to awareness with paralysis because it's gone in five or ten minutes. Mm -hmm. But they were having a very hard time ventilating him and getting him in sync with the ventilator. So they pushed a dose of rocuronium because he was biting the tube. So biting the tube indicates that you're in pain and you're not well sedated. By giving a paralytic, it will stop the biting of the tube, uh. but your patient is still not sedated and they are still feeling the pain. So this is what I'm talking about. The respiratory therapist is over there going, for goodness sake, like you, you stop the biting of the tube, but this patient is now aware and can hear us talking and can feel everything we're doing. So wow. remember when you push a, an extra dose of um, a paralytic for ventilator dyssynchrony, you are not sedating your patient. They are yeah. still feeling the pain. Yeah, and I it's guess not anytime, anytime anybody tells me to stay calm is exactly when I don't stay calm. So I, it's probably not the best thing to hear when. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's right. So we definitely have some room for improvement. We've got to stop doing this to our patients. Please, please, please pay attention to the timing of your, your pain and sedation medications, the dosages that you are giving for induction and for continuous sedation. This is really, really important. Well, I know that I struggle with sleep paralysis, which is what I kind of thought we were going to talk about, but this is far more interesting. But I know that with sleep paralysis, I do get into this sort of weird liminal state where I'm half awake, but I'm also not. And so I can't move, but I'm aware of something happening nearby. I'm, and, and it feels as if 
there's someone hovering over me or there's somebody crawling back into bed with me or, and I, I, I absolutely cannot move. Um, and if this, uh, that's all a dream. And now that I know I struggle with it, when it happens, I'm able to sort of psych myself out of it. I can say, oh, this is sleep paralysis. You're, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And then I fall back asleep. But to be in an emergency room after the trauma of some, let's say, catastrophic accident, to be in extraordinary pain and to actually physically be prevented from moving by virtue of some drug that's been administered and not to be able to communicate your pain, that's got to be pretty terrifying. Yeah. And imagine you're, you're laying there feeling that. Imagine now that someone's doing something really painful to you or that you yeah. have this painful tube in. So um, just in closing, I wanted to mention two other things. So um, there are two other podcasts that we're going to link mm -hmm. that are about this ED awareness study. They are directed toward physicians, but will benefit nurses and other ancillary personnel, uh, pharmacy and, and respiratory as well. So one is uh, MCRIT, Scott Weingart, that I referenced a couple of times. Another suggest couple suggestions that he makes is that you give two milligrams of Versed after the intubation. That's an amnestic. So while you're trying to get everything dialed in, at least you're giving your patient this amnestic so they won't remember. And then the other thing is he says to start your propofol around 50 mics per kilo, um, especially if the patient is elderly. If they're young and otherwise healthy, you can go much, much higher than that. Uh, typically, that's not what we see. People start at 5 or 10 and start working their way up. You will never get sedation with 5 or 10 mics. Um, and then what they were bumping into was finding that institutions had a cap on the, the dose of propofol that is probably not appropriate. So mm. take this research to your institution if that's you. If you've got a max dose of propofol that's not high enough to sedate your patients, um, take this information and this research to your institution and show them what, what the consequences could be. The other one that we will link is by Rebel EM. Salim Rezai also discusses it. Um, a really good discussion as well about the ED awareness study. So, Fascinating. Okay. Well, folks, we hope you learned something new and that you can bring this back to your hospitals and incorporate this into your practice. We're really still continuing to strike the balance. Um, I mean, I think we've come a long way from the ether dome, but but um, we haven't got it quite perfect yet. Well, you've gone a long way from the ether dome as you're back in Georgia, but it's just down the street from me. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let's All right. Back soon. Yes, please come back and visit, and we'll definitely check it out again. And if you folks are ever up here in Boston, please do check it out. And we will talk to you all soon. If you like what you heard, please email us at the keyword podcast at gmail.com or come and see us at the keyword podcast dot com, our website. And we will check in with you soon. Bye, Lisa. Bye, Lisa. You're going to ask that question again. I need you to stop moving those papers around. You are killing me. I mean, I. That's where my information is. Like I know. I, that's why I need to teach you to start using your computer so that you can like look at another mm -hmm. window. Because <laughs> uh, every time you're moving around, it's you're making a lot of paper noise. So I hope to God I'll be able to cut that out while you were talking. <laughs> Woman! <laughs> okay, what was the question? What, what, what?